Amen. Thank you, guys. That was amazing. Well, it is good to be with you again this Sunday. Hope everyone's doing well. I do have a Band-Aid on my thumb. It is Iron Man, if you're questioning. <laughs> we have four kids, and that's, that's what we have in our house. Um, before I begin, I just want to talk about 21 Days of Prayer. Today is the last day um, for the 21 pr- Days of Prayer initiative. Um, tomorrow we're doing the celebration, is what they're calling it. And it's, I really encourage you to come tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be at 33, the main campus, and there's going to be worship, there's going to be testimonies, there's going to be prayer, go figure. Um, and so it's an awesome time for us to gather together, and for those who have been partaking this, and for those who have just been praying, and it's just your normal life to pray, which is great, uh, to hear testimonies of what the Lord has done, to hear how he is good, to, to celebrate together, like, it's an amazing time to come. Part of the 21 days of prayer for my family and I, um, one of the things was for our house to sell. And I was like, you know, Father, I want the house to sell in these 21 days. I want it to sell in these 21 days. And um, just being bold, you know, it's not me that's like coercing him. Like, come on, Jesus, like sell my house, like twisting his arm. but just this past week, we accepted an offer on the sale of our home. So I am not a crier. I'm trying not to cry. I could see my wife is crying. But thank you for those of you who've come up to me and said, part of my 21 days of prayer is for your house to sell. This is what the family is about. This is what praying is about. And it's not just for me. It's that we're coming together, seeing the needs of others. Because on my prayer list was others and just praying for them. And so these 21 days of prayer have been great because it got me thinking about things like, um, not just the three things I should pray for, but more. And then I thought, like, what in the Bible? Like, what did they pray for? And I had this exhaustive list that I found of everything that uh, I could see that people had prayed for. And I'm going to give some of them here. And I have a list that's going to pop up. Right after a rush. There we are. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they wanted a family when they couldn't have kids, so they prayed for a son. Solomon prayed for wisdom in his new job. Eliza, in Genesis 24, prayed he could meet a pretty girl he could set his master Isaac up with. Come on now. <laughs> We've all been there. I know I've been there. <laughs> for myself, personally, I'm praying for somebody else. Well, maybe I have been. Never mind. We're continuing on the list. Samson, he prayed for water when he... He was thirsty and superhuman strength to accomplish a task. Joshua prayed for the sun to stand still so he could finish a battle. Daniel had a weird dream. He didn't know what it meant, so he prayed for interpretation. Gideon thought God was calling him to do something, but he wasn't sure, so he prayed for confirmation that he should do it. And the list continues on. David prayed for forgiveness after committing adultery with Bathsheba. He prayed God would give him a clean heart and a renewed steadfast spirit. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. Paul prayed that some thorn in the flesh that bothered him would be kept, would be taken away. The disciples prayed for boldness. Fathers in the New Testament prayed for their little girls to get better. Peter asked Jesus for financial help to pay for his taxes. Jesus told his disciples to pray to get out of the temptation. He prayed that his disciples would stop acting like idiots and be unified. 
he, no, he didn't use that term. I'm using it. God, Jesus told us to pray for lost people and the workers to get the gospel to them. All the apostles prayed for Jesus to come back quickly. The moral is this. Pray. Pray. Because when we come to the Lord in everything, with everything, we're trusting him in everything. When we pray more, we get to know him more. And then though our prayers begin to, ch- our prayers actually begin to change. When we come to him, we're trusting in him. Then our heart starts to line up with him. And then our prayers become more powerful. And I just kept thinking about Daniel. He prayed three times a day, as many times as he ate. What if we prayed as many times as we ate? Some of you are like, I pray like six times a day. I'm like, well, your prayer life should be amazing then. Because <laughs> I eat six meals. Yes. There's breakfast, mid-breakfast, lunch, mid-lunch, dinner, and after dinner snack party. And so, and then the last one, you're like, wow, where are we going? This, I, I just, I'm bringing this home. Prayer, prayer, prayer. I was struck by the story of the night before Jesus died. Jesus had taken three of his closest disciples deep into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. Jesus was about to go through the greatest struggle he had ever, ever been through. And he needed these guys to pray with him. He left them in a place to pray and went on a little further from where they are into the garden to pray by himself, telling them they needed to pray that they would not fall into temptations for themselves. He came back. He found them asleep. Who's been there? (laughs) I've been there. I'm praying. You wake up. You're like, what time is it? Have I been praying for an hour? No, you've been sleeping for an hour. (laughs) When he woke them up, he probably, you know, they probably tried to pretend like they were praying. Oh, oh God, yes. And bless the missionaries. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. But Jesus wasn't fooled. He said, could you not even watch and pray? With me for an hour. Not even for an hour. Then later that night, uh, Peter would deny Jesus three times. So here's the question that was running through my mind. What if Peter had stayed awake for that hour? Jesus told him to stay up and pray that he would not enter into temptation. Maybe he would not have crumbled that night and made the greatest mistake of his life. When Jesus had found Peter sleeping, he said, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Exactly. Prayer is God's means of strengthening your spirit to avoid temptation and to to snap the world's power over you. Prayer is huge. I'm not even into my sermon yet, but you know what? This kind of flows into what I'm going to be talking about here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you, or that we can come to your feet and say, you are everything that I need. Lord, we see throughout this Bible, people prayed and prayed and prayed for anything and everything, trusting in you that you would come through. And so let us hear your voice as we come to you, Father. Amen. Um, growing up, I liked to play football. I was a big football fan. Still am a big football fan. I'm um, excited for the Super Bowl. It's going to be busy next Sunday. A great week. Great Sunday to have. We've got soup. We've got fellowship. We've got 
we got tubing. We got Super Bowl Sunday. It's going to be awesome. But my favorite place, position to play was a wide receiver, mostly because I was a diva. I didn't want to get hurt. And so it was the next, like, the manliest thing next to, like, the kicker. And I didn't want to be the kicker because, you know, kickers, they're essentially soccer players with pads on. And so I was like, I want to be the wide receiver. And so I played all the time. And so I was playing a game with my friends, and there was an older guy who came. He could throw the ball really hard. I was probably, like, 9 or 10 around this time. And I remember running a play. So I ran what's called, like, a quick five-yard in. So I ran five yards. The little shake because I had great moves. And then it came back to the ball. And so when you catch the ball, you do this. And so that tip of the ball can land right between the triangle of your arm, so your hand. So it doesn't hit your hand, that would hurt. Hit your finger, that would hurt. And so it hits right in there. And so you can brace it like that. And so I was about to turn around and I put up my hands. He'd already thrown the ball. And so by the time I got my hands to like right here, the ball had come straight directly into my finger. Hit it. Caught the ball. And then after I put the ball down, I looked at my finger and I was like, man, my finger doesn't normally point that way. (laughs) (laughs) And so, broken bones? I say double jointed. No, literally, it was a broken bone. And so my friends, they come running over and they're like, because then I like, like, ah, and they're like, are you all right? And I'm like, looking at it, and they're like, oh my gosh, we need to stop playing. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. And I look at them with the bravest face that I can ever give, and I was like, no pain, no gain. You know, (laughs) as hardcore as I can be. (laughs) And so we finished the game, actually. I I didn't stop playing. I just finished the game. And then I remember they're like, you're so cool. I'm like, I know. And so I go into the house and shut the door, and I look at my mom. I'm like, mommy, my finger broke. We need to go. Seriously, just like that. And she said, my mom, I was a mama's boy. And she's like, oh, poor baby. And she came and she nurtured me back to good health. We put a splint on it. And I wasn't able to play football for a little bit. And so I was telling this story to my one friend. And I was like, he's a funny guy. And I was like, oh, I broke my finger. And I said, no pain, no gain. I don't know why I said that, but I felt like I should. And it's like, this one time, he's like, my friend challenged me to eat a whole pizza and I was almost finishing it and I was feeling so much pain then I was like you know what I looked at the guy and I was like no pain no weight gain (laughs) so I was like all right whatever (laughs) and so but this is true this statement right no pain no gain like I remember training for basketball and the first run was always the worst because your body is not used to it and so you're running and you feel the pain and then you go back and you do it again next week and it doesn't hurt as much. And then the week after and it doesn't hurt as much. And then the week after that, then you're just running and it just comes natural to you. The muscles in your body, they have grown accustomed to. Yeah, it's not swagger. I'm just sore. Like we all feel that sore when we, wake up, when we work out. And so the heart of the statement is that suffering is necessary in order to achieve something or to receive something you have to do something, right? Can we say that? To receive something, you have to do something. This phrase, no pain, no gain, was coined by Benjamin Franklin. Go figure. He said, there are no gains without pains. He wrote this when he was talking about how he used to exercise to increase his own health and longevity. 
So this got me thinking. What do we need in order to see something happen? What do we need? How do we receive something? We have to do something. We have to, re- to receive something, we have to do something. So what do we need to do? Let's turn to Mark chapter 9, 14 to 29. And it says this. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, he came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, what could we, why couldn't we have driven it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So let's give a background to a bit of this and what has happened here. We see that Jesus had just come down from the mountain, and the three of his disciples were with him. This is the first scene. And what happened when they came down from the mountain was uh, the, called the Transfiguration, where Jesus was there, Elijah was there, Moses was there. Peter was like, what do I do? Offer them a place to stay. And so, but really it was just a confirmation that, hey, you fulfilled the prophet, like what's said by the prophet Elijah, and you fulfilled what's, saying, what's been said in the law of Moses. And now... It's coming to the end. And so a great scene, a crazy scene, amazing. And the father would have brought the boy and appealed to the disciples to exercise the power known to belong to Jesus. So he would have brought the boy to the disciples and been like, can you deliver this boy of the spirit? Because the basic principle to discipleship was that the messenger of a man is as the man himself. So if you're someone's disciple, you can do what they did. And so we've talked about this. Like the rabbi was looking for somebody who can do what they did. So someone who can carry on their teaching, what they have been learning. And so this was the heart of what the, why the father brought the boy to the, to the disciples. Therefore, in Jesus' absence, the disciples stood in his place and regarded as he is. You're just like Jesus, You're just like your rabbi. You should be able to do what he, what he does. It was then, therefore, legitimate to expect that the possess, they possessed the power of their master. So, when he wasn't healed, it was like, what's going on? 
And the beginning scene is very tense. It says, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. See, the boy isn't healed. And the crowd is surrounding the disciples as they argue with the scribes. Since the boy wasn't healed, that means the teachings of Jesus are misleading people. And that needs to be dealt with, which is why we see the scribes there. The scribes were there because they were probably sent out by the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court, like the law, like they're coming after you, to gather evidence against Jesus. This person wasn't healed. The teaching, your, your rabbi's teachings aren't good. You're not carrying that power. So we need to have the Sanhedrin, we need the scribes to come to fill out what's going on. Are you a false teacher? So there needs to be an investigation. If the followers of Jesus weren't able to heal a possessed boy, then the authority of Jesus' teachings were not true. So we see the inability of disciples to heal this boy has shaken the father's confidence, as we read, in Jesus' ability to do anything. It's like, I don't know if he can do anything. He would have heard who Jesus was. This father would have heard of Jesus and his teachings. And and, what, and knew that if these men were followers of Jesus, if Jesus was their rabbi, then they should be able to do this. So his belief now in Jesus' power was shaken. We see his belief shaken when the father answers Jesus and, said, asked, and Jesus asks, how long has he been like this? And he said, well, you know, from childhood. And he's like, but if you can do anything... Take pity on us and help us, right? It's, that's, is that like a, a solid statement? Like, yeah, if he can do anything, Jesus, like, he's, like he's, he's not believing anymore. The father says, if you can do anything, take pity on us. This was a desperate cry now. But at the same time, his words contained like a concealed accusation almost against the powerlessness of the disciples which led the father to doubt Jesus' ability to offer real assistance to his son. Jesus responds, if you can, question mark. Like Jesus' power was something to be elicited through a challenge. He said, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaims, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So the father is saying, I believe you, father, but give me faith. I believe it comes from you. The father has been shaken because the disciples didn't heal his son. His belief in Jesus is now in question. He still brings the boy to Jesus and asks him to be healed. He still, believe, still believes in Jesus. But he needs Jesus. Give him faith. Then Jesus ends up healing the boy, as we see. After everything was over, they withdraw to a house where Jesus can be questioned in private by the disciples. It was like a time for supplementary teaching reserved for the disciples alone. It was like a debrief, like we do. We do debriefs. And this was a regular occurrence because we see this in chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 9, and chapter 10. There always seemed to be a debrief after an event. Where the, now it's just the disciples and Jesus, and the disciples get to ask Jesus, like, what happened? Like, what, what else should I know? Like, what am I not getting? Like, how were you able to do this? How wasn't I able to do this? 
And the ver- this, this part of the scripture ends in verse 28 and 29, which is, called, which is called an epilogue. An epilogue is this. It brings closure to the speech. It deals with what happened at the beginning. So the meaning of the writing of this portion of scripture is, is revealed in the final speech, in the final paragraph, in the final verse. So the meaning of everything is in verse 28 and 29. In this time, the disciples immediately asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out the demonic spirit. They were perplexed. Why couldn't we do it? What happened? We have read the disciples had been able to perform miracles before. This wasn't something, this wasn't their first time. They weren't coming into this blind. They're like, oh no, this is our first time. Well, what do we do? They have done it before. In Mark's Chapter 6, 7 to 13, Jesus gave authority to the disciples to cast out demons. He had given it to them. He said, yes, you have this authority now. In Mark 6, 12 to to 13, they say, They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They have prayed. They have seen healings before. They had seen people come to know Christ. This wasn't their first time. They knew it could happen. That is what they went out and did. They prayed for healing. They prayed for people to come to know Christ. Scripture shows that to be the case. Do you know how sometimes you can feel really confident in your abilities? And maybe in your confidence and your abilities, you forget how you got there. Forget the source. Sometimes I think I'm really good at basketball. And then I go play for the first time. And when I haven't played in a long time. And try to do the things I think I should be able to do. I realize I haven't put the time in, the effort in. and put the practice in. Like what about a plant? Like what if a plant thinks, man, I am so good at growing. Like I am amazing. I am so big now. How did I do this? I am the best plant in the whole entire world. And then they're like, oh, this sun. This sun is really hot. I'm not liking this sun right now. And so it's like, I need to move away from the sun. So it moves away from the sun into the shade. Then after a while, it's like, it doesn't grow anymore. It starts to feel like it starts to wither up a little bit. The plant needs the sun. The plant needs to be in the sunlight. It needs it to grow. And it's not going anywhere without the sun. And the disciples, they get a similar answer in Mark chapter 9, verses 28 to 29. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Probably not that they hadn't prayed over the demonized boy, but that they had not lived in prayer. They had been caught in a prayerless period of their life. Jesus cast out the demon without praying. He just says, you dumb and deaf spirit, I command you come out. And never enter him again. But Jesus had prayed. He lived in prayer. He was ready when evil came. But the disciples had become weak and negligent in their praying. And they were powerless in the face of a strong evil force. And Jesus reveals, answer reveals how much faith they had in themselves, how self-reliant they were. They think, we did this before. We can do this again. 
And we see the correlations with the disciple and the father. Disciples thought they could do it. But it was Jesus who does it. The father realizes it isn't his faith. But it's faith Jesus gives him. So Jesus said that the only prayer could, that only prayer could drive out this type of demon. He didn't say long prayers. He didn't say more passionate prayers. He didn't say more specific or theologically concise prayers. He said they should have been in prayer. So the indictment was clear. They hadn't been praying. What was also clear was that Jesus spoke only of prayer as a source of faith's power and the means of strength. Now, this wasn't some sort of super demon or villain with superpower. It wasn't like Thanos of the Avengers, if you've watched Thanos, the snaps, or the Avengers. Trying to be culturally re relevant here, so. Jesus, he simply rebuked the demon and commanded. But Jesus had prayed. We see throughout Jesus' time on earth that he prayed. There is this passage of scripture when the disciples are sitting down with Jesus. They are spending time with him as they had three years to do. And they would have seen all the miraculous things that they would have done. And they had this time to ask him any question, anything they want to ask. They wanted him to teach them something, teach us something. And what they asked Jesus to teach them is this, teach us to pray. <coughs> all the things they could have asked him, they asked him to teach us to pray. They evidently saw this as a source of Jesus' power. Teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us to preach. Teach us to te teach. Uh, teach us how we can do miracles. So teach us how to pray. He lived in prayer. He was ready when evil came. But the disciples, they were weak at this moment because they had a prayerless life. Our lack of prayer is, this is a huge statement. Our lack of prayer is evidence of our lack of faith in Jesus, but strong faith in ourselves. They're like, ooh. That was ooh for me too. We saw right in the beginning, all those, everybody came to, to Christ. Prayer for everything. This is why Jesus called them faithless in verse 19. Your lack of prayer shows where your faith lies. It lies in yourself rather than me. The disciples had lost sight of utter dependence of God. They thought the power belonged to them, which is also why they didn't pray. The disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they'd received from Jesus was in their control. They can just do it anytime. It's, he's given it to us. But if we think like that, then we forget the source. And it becomes our, we try to do it on our strength rather than the Lord's strength. The Lord's teaching us it's about him. It's all about him. They had to learn that their previous success in expelling demons provided no guarantee of continued power. Sometimes when I go in and I talk to somebody about a situation, I, I pray. And then the times that I don't pray, I'm like, oh, I've talked to somebody about this before when I was at the Bible school. And then I just feel lost. Like, but I've had this talk like 10 times. I know the things to say. 
It's my, but it's the, I know the things to say. I know the things to say. It's like, where is my power coming from? Not my power. It's actually the Lord's power. He gives me the strength. We don't, sometimes we don't pray because we think we can handle most situations. We presume upon his grace. We think we have a good marriage because we have a great spouse. And I have a great spouse, but I pray for my marriage. Or the reason there's been reconciliation in our relationship is due to us being wise. Or the reason we have a good job is because we've been working so hard and working hard is very important. But we have to recognize where it all comes from. We can usually handle things until a situation arises where our normal means of operation can't fix the problem. It, it, it isn't until we can, can't overcome some evil that we begin to realize how dependent we are on God. No matter how much faith, no matter how much faith you think you have, prayer shows how much is actually there. According to Jesus, how much you pray, love to pray is an indication of how much you actually know God. And according to the Bible, all the blessings that Jesus bestows, he does so through prayer. But the great thing about this is we realize when the disciples, they didn't get it. But then they give us the stories in Acts. The disciples, they learned really quick. And what is great is that the disciples displayed what this looks like the church, to us, what we are called to do. Let's turn to Acts. You can turn there. You can turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. If not, it will pop up right here. Before we get into this verse, we have this fledging group of believers. Christ had just died. He'd been risen. They're waiting for instruction on what to do, on what's, what it's going to look like. They're scared to death. They're in a small upper room. They are rural, uneducated, common Galileans. And what are they doing? They're not plotting strategies. They're not discussing models on how we're going to make this spread or making plans. This is our 10-step plan on how we're going to do this now. We see in this verse, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In response to these prayers, God sent his power. Now let's picture this as if it was for the first time. There's a verse that's going to pop up here, Acts 2, 1 to 4. Picture this as if you're hearing this for the first time. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Crazy scene. Picture this for the first time. You can close your eyes if you want to. If your eyes are already closed, I know. That means you're sleeping. So I'll open them up and then close them again. And now let's picture this together. <laughs> picture this. The sound of a violent hurricane-type wind. Not actually a the wind itself, but the sound of it. And then resting on, on them, a tongue of fire. Imagine looking at the person next to you and seeing that, like a tongue of fire on top of them. What are you doing? Like, trying to, <laughs> is that real? Like, what's going on there? What were they doing? Like, a tongue of fire? 
Then they were speaking in different tongues, and everyone was bewildered. These Galileans, these simple Galileans, were speaking, each one of them was speaking a different language. Parathians, Medes, Elamites, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, that's that one, and then the other one, and there is more. All heard them declaring God in their own language. God in their own, they're hearing them proclaim God in their own language. This power now. Then Peter gets up and has to address the crowd because at the end of chapter 2, they're like, you guys are so hammered. And so essentially, Peter's first sermon, we're not drunk. The first thing that he has to say. Then he starts talking about what is happening. Imagine that being your first sermon. And after he's done, 3,000 is added. 3,000 after he gives that. The we're not drunk sermon. Then in Acts 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The theme of prayer continues and runs through Acts. And they're going to come rapid fire here. Acts, Acts 3, verse 1 says this, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple for a time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried, that's, that's a bad misspelling spelling right there, to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going to the temple courts. Peter and John encountered this man on their way, and this man asked them for coins, but they could give him something much better. An encounter with Jesus. In the name of Jesus, be healed, and he is up and walking. And it's not he's just walking, he's lump, leaping and jumping. He's excited. Peter and John had been committed to pray, and healing happens. We see that they had a life of prayer. We see that they were going to pray. And it was a simple, get up, be healed. Or get up and be healed. And then in Acts 4, Verse 23 to 24, on their release, Peter and John went to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. In the middle of this prayer, in verse 29, it starts and it says this. In the middle of their prayer, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant. And then right after that, in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word boldly. And this just keeps going on and on throughout Acts. And I think you see where I'm going through this. But with one more time, in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, they say this, and we give all our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then right after, in, in, after this prayer, in Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God spread, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And we can continue on throughout Acts. I can continue going on here that we see there's prayer and then there's power. We see that they're reliant on prayer and then Christ shows up. We see that the disciples, they 
get it. They learn from that moment back in Mark when they tried to pray for that boy and it didn't happen. And Jesus at the end said, the important thing is this, that you need to pray. They finally got it. So in the beginning, if there is no pain without gain, there is no, when there, where there is no prayer, there is no power. Prayer is the conduit, not a, but the conduit, by which God's power comes into your life, your family, the wire that connects you to the electricity of God's power. To cut yourself off from prayer is to cut yourself off from power. Body, this is us. We are. Committed to pray. We want to see his power. We want to see lay country and the people of this wonderful community come to know Christ. We want to see it expand and grow. We want to see these chairs filled. It is, starts with prayer. Because that's where our power, the power of the Lord will come. In our lives, it starts with prayer. The one concern of the devil, and here's this quote from Samuel Chadwick. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power, turns ordinary Galileans into men of power. Prayer brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of a prevailing prayer. Where there is no prayer, there is no power. We want to see people added like acts. We devote ourselves to prayer. We want to see miracles happen. We devote ourselves to prayer. We, when we rely on our abilities. We are no longer relying on God's abilities. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I just close here with this statement. We express our dependence by praying, by talking with God as often as we can about all details of our lives. There is no detail too big for God. He wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. We also learn in Mark is that even though God wants to be involved, he may refrain from getting involved if we are becoming too self-confident. Acting as if his power lies somewhere inherently with us and not with him. May we be people of prayer, continually demonstrating our complete dependence upon the Lord. The great thing is, is before that, right, we see the Mount of Transfiguration, this high, amazing moment of power. But then they come down to the reality that we live in a place that's broken. So we have these Sundays experience, which are great. We meet him, we hear the word, we worship together. The reality is we still need him throughout our week and we need that prayer life to help us go into the valley, which is irony here because we live in the Okanagan Valley, and to bring his power to this community. And so what we're going to do here is I want to take a couple minutes. And for some of you, uh, you have gone all in with the 21 days of prayer. And you've got your three, and maybe you've got more than that. For some of you, or maybe it's your first time here, you're like, 21 days of prayer, what is that? Um, 
But you know what? You have something you want to pray for. You have something in your life that you need to pray about. We all do. So I want to take these next two minutes while the band plays softly. I want you guys to pray. You imagine the power that's going to come from this place as we all bow our heads and lift up our, our little lives to the powerful God saying, you are everything I need. So as they play softly and as I stop talking, I want you to pray. Those three things, whatever comes to your heart, let's commit this time.